Okay, guys, so it was about three years ago, and it was at that awkward time of day, three o'clock to five o'clock for young moms. We don't know what to do with ourselves during that time of day. Kids are tired and we're you know hungry and you kind of run out of clever ideas for the day. And so my idea was to, when we picked up my kindergartner, to stay at the school and to play at the playground. Okay, and so what started as a great idea would become um, a horrible memory. <laughs> so at that point I have a five-year-old, three-year-old, two-year-old, and I was also doing a mom swap where I had this fourth boy, because why not? Um, and so I had four boys at this uh, playground after school at our elementary school. And you know, I'm, I'm there and I'm trying to keep tabs on, on all of my kids. And at one point I'm like, okay, there's my oldest. Okay, there's my youngest. And oh yeah, better keep track of that one that's not even mine, great. Shoot, where's the three-year-old? Where is Matthias? Huh? And I you know, kind of walk around, I'm looking for him, looking for him. Wow, where is he? Oh no. When I can't find my three-year-old, do you know what's happening? I know what's happening. He's pooping somewhere. <laughs> I know it like I've never known anything before. I know why I can't find him because, because it's actually because he's not moving around. He's standing very still somewhere. I just knew it and so I scan the horizon as quickly as I can and there I find Matthias. And where is he? He is on the top of the slide. <laughs> and he has soiled himself. On the slide. He, he is actually on the slide. And I'm like, okay, I'm not a first time mom. I can do this. I can figure this out. You know, so I, he just got this look. And I, so I go and I, I get him down, you know, trying to keep my composure. I'm like, okay, making this plan in my mind. Okay, as I'm concocting this plan, um, who shows up but that extra kid's mom? She was gonna meet us there. And you gotta understand, like, she's like that mom. You know, she's that mom whose car is clean. She's that mom who's like gorgeous and doesn't have a temper and loves her husband well and all these things. And I'm just like, oh man, so she shows up. So the parking lot's kind of far away. And I see her pull up and all my insecurities flare up. So I'm like, okay, here's what I gotta do. I've got to clean up this mess before she sees it and get her child back to her. How am I gonna clean it up? Well, I know I have baby wipes in my van, my very dirty van, and it's all the way over in that parking lot. And so I pivot and I see, okay, here's, here's the plan. I can take off and I can sprint and I can get to this van and get back before her. But first, let me do a head count, right? You know, so I'm over here with my three-year-old you know, just trying to keep him contained. Okay, there's, there's my kindergartner. Okay, here's the extra kid, so I know where he is. Where is my two-year-old? Where is my two-year-old? Oh, there he is, going down the slide. <laughs> I will not be defeated. I start sprinting to my van. I see those baby wipes in my mind. I just channel high school Rebecca. I'm gonna get there as fast as I can. Grab the baby wipes, you know, wave to the pretty mom, turn around, and I'm taking off to clean up this mess before anyone else can see it, to clean up my children. And who do I see coming but the after school program kids? Oh. 
and they're coming out of the school and they're like it's like one of those um, war scenes where they're coming across the front they're all on a line you know and they're running out and they're so excited for recess I'm like no I can beat them so I go as fast as I can they get there right before me and when I mean there they get to the slide and go down the slide I was encircled by fourth graders covered in my son's mess <laughs> and at that point I I gave up I grabbed my very dirty smelly children and we walked away <laughs> and got in our dirty van and went home it was a day that was not funny at the time I'm not even sure if I truly at the heart think it's funny quite yet <laughs> however it uh, is a story that will help us understand a little bit of what we're going through today in the text. Go ahead and start opening up to Hosea again. Hopefully you marked it from last night. Let's see if we can pull out the connection from last night's text with today. So last night we talked about God blocking our way to our other lovers, right? He's, he's wanting uh, to keep us close, and so his nearness and his jealousy are the two things we looked at. His nearness and his jealousy are the means by which he keeps us close to him. Well, this morning we are going to look at how God wants to remove these other things that we love. He wants to remove these other lovers, those things that dull our appetite for him. But the goal is the same. The goal is the same each time. He wants to reveal himself as a loving husband God and invite us near as the wives. So that's where we're going. The question that we are going to ask again is how does God respond to unfaithfulness? How will unfaithfulness be dealt with? And maybe more specifically, the question is, will he handle it the same every time? Will he respond the same every time? So let's see what we can find. Open your Bibles with me to Hosea chapter 2. And we're going to just start simply with what does it say? So what does it say? It says, she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Okay, we're just going to stop right there. Oh, I'm sorry, eight. Hosea, Hosea 2, 8. She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, we see another little list. So just real simply, guys, what does it say? What has Gomer done? Well, she doesn't know that Hosea has provided for her, right? We're not sure. Is she forgetful or is she confused? It doesn't really matter. We just know that she does not understand that it's her husband who has provided her these things. And that's why she's left them. And then it says that she's taken these gifts and these provisions that he has given her and she's using them in Baal worship. She's using them in pagan idol worship. And let's keep moving along. How does Hosea respond? Remember, we're just starting with the most simple part of this analogy, Gomer and Hosea. How does Hosea respond? Well, I'm just gonna quickly read verses nine through 12. Therefore, I, Hosea, will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season and I will take away my wool and my flax which were to cover her nakedness 
Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. I will put an end to all her mirth, her feast, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the fields shall devour them. How does Hosea respond? It sounds like, it looks like he takes away the gifts that he'd previously given to her. The gifts that she was crediting to her other lovers, he's now going to take those away. The bread, the wine, the clothing. That means she's now hungry, thirsty, and uncovered. Hosea is saying, party's over. He's saying, woman, I am not going to let you feel productive anymore. Your work will not pay off. All of your endeavors will be foiled. So next step, what does this mean? Carrying out the metaphor, what is this saying? What has Israel done? Well, God is saying through his prophet Hosea that Israel is guilty of not knowing God as provider. And then is guilty of taking all these provisions from God and using them in idol worship, in pagan worship. And that's the point where we say, hold on. That's talking some big talk, God. That's a really big accusation. Can you back that? I mean, God, Israel would not do that. Sure, maybe they would struggle with wanting control over their life, maybe struggling with a little bit of doubt, but taking the gifts you've given them and using them in idol worship, they wouldn't do that. Well, here's an example of of just that. Maybe it's familiar to you. Exodus 32 tells the story. And honestly, guys, aside from Jesus on the cross, Exodus 32, I think, is the saddest story in the whole Bible. So I'll just summarize it quickly for you um, so we're not turning back and forth too much. Exodus 32, God's people have just been delivered from Egypt. What we referenced last night, Moses has brought them out, and they are just starting their pilgrim journey. They're just learning whose they are. And Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, and he's up there to receive the law, and God has descended on Mount Sinai. And the people are down at the camp. They have set up camp at the base of the mountain, but Moses has been gone for a while. And so the people start doubting. They get impatient, really, if we want to keep it simple. And they say, who is this Moses? So they go to Aaron, and they say, make us a god. And Aaron says, okay. Give me your rings and your gold. Give me your necklaces and your jewelry. And he takes this from them and he fashions it into a golden calf. And they have a party. They worship. And Aaron even says something like, this is your God. Here are the people of Israel in pagan worship. But guys, that's not where it stops. This is so sad. Do you know where they got all that jewelry? Do you know where they got that gold and that silver? It's a small little detail, but as the people of God are leaving Egypt, God has so moved, God has so flexed his muscles that the Egyptians, their oppressors, are terrified. And the Hebrews actually plunder the Egyptians. So as they're leaving, the Egyptians are giving them all of their gold and their silver and their jewelry. He's giving them all of this. God is providing all of those things from their enemies even. And that is what they are then giving to Aaron to make into an idol. Because that was just the beginning. I mean, that's just chapter one of God's people in the book of Exodus. 
Later, when the people are actually in God's promised land, they will do the same thing. They will worship the gods of their neighbors. They will worship the God of the Canaanites, specifically Baal. That's how, that's what God's talking about. That's what Israel has done. So how will God respond to them? Well, this is a lot like the first response in that it really doesn't seem loving at first. Right? I mean, last night, the, the thorns, the wall, the hedge, the, the driving her to a point of frustration, it didn't sound loving. But Hosea is warning them that God will allow his bride, if she is unrepentant, to experience hunger, thirst, exposure, shame, sadness, poverty, need, the list goes on and on and on. Yikes. This is tough. This is hard to read. Is this our answer? Is this the answer to our question? I guess the bride gets what she deserves. I guess the bucket of grace has run dry. I mean, what happened to our love story? This is cruel. How is this scene supposed to communicate to me and to you that God is love? How could a loving God ever behave like this? How could need or hurt or humiliation ever be good for someone? How could uncertainty ever be good for someone? How could that ever communicate love? Why would God do this? Guys, we could talk so much about this topic. You know, the question of why do bad things happen to good people, there's no short and clean answer for that. But I want us to make sure we see that that's actually not what's happening here. That's actually not the question to get hung up on here of why do bad things happen to God's children. That's not what this text is showing us if we look closely enough. What is going on here? is that she is receiving the consequences of her sin. Isn't she? She is reaping what she has sown. But what does she deserve? I mean, if we carry the analogy out, does she not just deserve divorce? I mean, isn't it obvious, isn't it warranted that that he would divorce her, that Hosea would divorce Gomer, that God would divorce his people, that he would no longer be in that covenant with them? I mean, she has been unfaithful. But that's not what we read. There isn't this talk of divorce. Hosea hasn't just exited stage right, and nor has God. Ladies, you start to sense that there is something redemptive brewing in this text. There is something stirring under the waters, and it should excite us. Something that tastes and sounds and hears, sounds like redemption. See, what is going on is that God is making Israel need for a reason. He is putting her in a place of need so that she will be awakened to a much greater need. What is it that she needs? What do the children of God need more than anything else? They need the nearness of God. They need the nearness of God. And more specifically, ladies, they need the nearness of a God who has no need. Okay, this is called the self-sufficiency of God. So this is one of those points where we say God is, fill in the blank. God is self-sufficient. Or you could just say God has no need. It is so important for us to understand that. 
So even his jealousy, like we talked about last night, it comes from a place of having no need. So he's not the high school boy who needs the love of the head cheerleader. He's not Michael Scott who needs the friendship of his employees. He's not um, Wreck-It Ralph who needs the friendship of a weird little biker or racer girl, right? He has no need. I've heard it said that if, if everyone in this room and in the world was an atheist, God would still be without need. That is mind-boggling. And actually, it's the most beautiful paradox in all of the Bible that the God who does not need his people pursues them anyway. But what about us? We have great need, don't we? We need food and water. We need that bread and water, don't we? We need shelter and clothes. We need rest. And so maybe we need to pause, even though we're just now getting started in this text, and we can pull out a a smaller application for the morning, a time to acknowledge we are so different than God in this way. He has no need. We have needs. So often, I plow through life acting like I have no needs. And so maybe we can challenge one another this weekend and gently remind one another that we are not God. There is no superwoman in this room. Let's call each other out on this and rejoice in the facts that God is different than us in this way. But we have needs. Our needs are many. We need boundaries and rest. We need each other. We need community. But our greatest need is the nearness of God. Our greatest need is intimacy with the husband God. Okay, so back in the text. Continuing through with our process, how does God respond to Israel's unfaithfulness? So what is Hosea actually referring to at this point in the poem? Um, Well, what's going on in uh, Israel's history at that time is shortly what will happen after Hosea's ministry is that, honestly, the people of God, they don't repent. So Hosea delivers these messages, and the people of God as a whole do not soften. They do not return to him as he wants them to. And so God brings what he has warned he would bring. It's what Hosea is prophesying about. And so what happens is a pretty sad day in Israel's history. Assyria, one of their neighbors, the one that they were trying to suck up to and make relationship with, they come and they actually encircle the city of God. They encircle it for three years. That means that Jerusalem has no trade. They have no productivity. Do you know what that leads to? Starvation. People are dying of starvation and thirst. There is no more trade. The people of God, the city of God is encircled. They are encircled in their shame. And they would eventually be taken over completely by Assyria and carried off as exiles into captivity for 70 years. And isn't this hard to hear? Again, it's just getting harder and harder. This is not low-lying fruit of Scripture. These are hard texts to take on and to look at. Here are God's beloved people dying on the vine. And we don't want to hear that. We don't want to study that at a women's retreat. 
But part of why we bristle at that, we kind of shrug away from that, is because we don't, our culture, it, it doesn't have room for shame. Right? We don't want to talk about shame. And in Christian culture, and in our most of our churches today, there isn't really room for conversations about the consequences of sin. That's not fun. That's not uplifting. That's not encouraging. But we've got plenty of time to talk about grace upon grace, right? And we encourage authenticity and tell us how you really are. We start presenting this soft gospel to one another without even knowing it. We, we wear shirts that say, how do they go? Yoga pants, messy hair, don't care. <laughs> Just give me tacos and Jesus, right? And those aren't bad in themselves, but what, is, what are we doing, ladies? We are starting to soften things for one another. And everything kind of has this lighthearted, shrug it off. You just be yourself. You just be you. You just get your best life. And we just soften it for one another. See, that's coming from the beginning of time. From the very beginning of time, shame was something that we didn't want to deal with. Shame was something we wanted to cover up. Can you think of what I'm referring to? In Genesis, in the garden, the moment of unfaithfulness, shame rushed in. Adam and Eve felt shame. And what did they want to do? They wanted to cover it up. They didn't want God to see them naked. They didn't want the other person to see them naked. And so they plucked a couple fig leaves and tried to cover up their shame, their embarrassment. And they said, we got this covered. Our needs are now met. Our shame has been covered. But was it? We're going to go back to that scene in a little bit. Let's finish out our process now. Let's let this text turn a mirror into our own life. What does this mean for us? Are we guilty of the same sin as Gomer and Israel? She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Man, guys, how often in life do we look at all the swag in our life and we forget where it came from? We get confused. We become forgetful. So my house, it's from my paycheck. My three square meals a day, well, that comes from my good work ethic. I deserve that. My wonderful children, oh, yeah, they're from my wonderful parenting. My wonderful reputation, that's from my charm, right? And then it gets even sicker, guys. It progresses. Because then we take these gifts that God has provided for us, and we twist them, and we change it, and we end up laying it down in a form of idol worship. We take these things, and we use them to serve ourselves. We lay them down at the altar to ensure that our little queendom is well taken care of, that we are secure on top of our throne. I am guilty of the same unfaithfulness as Gomer and as Israel. How does God respond to us? I mean, this is the point when the rubber hits the road, guys. How does God respond to us? Is this analogy going to carry through? This metaphor? I hope not. I mean, if it's true, if, if this text is true, if we're understanding it, then that means that it's only a matter of time before we get chased down encircled, lose everything to our name. 
Is that what this text is saying? Is the justice of God kind of like up to bat, cocked and ready to cut us down at the roots? Do we sit in that tension? Are we pulling back that rubber band and getting a feel of the justice and the holiness of God? Turn with me to John 8. John 8, starting in verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Okay, stop there for a second. Ladies, when we read these texts, especially if they're familiar to us, let's slow down and remember that this is a historical text. This actually happened. So put yourself there. Put yourself there in the temple and imagine this scene. Get into the skin of the story. You are in the temple courts and Jesus is sitting down teaching people. And these super spiritual police come, the scribes and the Pharisees, and they bring this woman to Jesus. Guys, and actually imagine this. Could they have actually pulled her out of a bed? I mean, could they have actually pulled her out of, of lovemaking where she was giving herself to a man other than her husband? What does that mean about what kind of state she's in? Is she clothed at all? I mean, is she half clothed? Is she crying? I mean, what does she think is coming? Stoning. She is terrified. Think of the fear. Think of the humiliation. Here she is, and she's placed in their midst. She is encircled by them. Is she wincing at every moment, at every movement of the people in the crowd expecting a rock to smash her skull at any moment? Are you actually in this moment with her, ladies? This was her reality, pulled out of bed and brought to the middle of a circle in the midst of judgmental men in the temple courts. Think of what it would be like to be her. What will happen in response to her unfaithfulness? How will Jesus deal with her unfaithfulness? Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. 
go and from now on sin no more. How does Jesus respond to this woman of unfaithfulness? Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Guys, what is he doing? I mean, let's ask a good question of the text. Is Jesus saying to her, you know what, I'm just going to turn a blind eye to your sin? Is he saying, you know what, it's fine. You messed up. Is he saying, you know what, you, you need love, so it's okay. Is he saying, you know what, girl, just go wash your face. Girl, <laughs> stop apologizing. <laughs> no, that is not what he's saying. He is not making her sin smaller. What is he doing then? He wants the scribes and the Pharisees to see their sin. He wants them to have a better reality of their sin. He is not downplaying her unfaithfulness. He is not trying to make her feel better and to dry her tears. The work here right now is on the scribes and the Pharisees, wanting them to see their unfaithfulness. He then draws the attention off of her, onto himself. And with that, what does he do? He silences her accusers. The encircling mob, it dissipates at the words of Jesus until it's only him and this woman left. Getting found out was the best thing that could have happened to this woman. And this is where my story picks up. Last night I told you guys about kind of chapter one of my story, that God graciously planted some hedges and some brick walls in my garden and through conflict allowed me to find, uh, to see the sin, the pride in my life. And I went into a, a season of, of really relearning the gospel. I was quieted. Um, I was still, I was depressed, honestly, for a good six months. But guys, there was more unfaithfulness inside of me than I had yet to see. And so God, in his jealousy and God in his love, allowed it to get worse. Nine months after kind of my, my kickoff of refinement, he allowed, God allowed my husband and I to enter into a season of discipline together. My husband, who had been a youth pastor for six years, see, he had had kind of a same, a similar track as me. The first five years, they were fruitful and they were exciting and they were fun. But because of that, because life was so good and we were just having babies and buying houses, we had no idea of the sin that was growing deep within us and spreading roots. And on one day in January of 2014, my husband got told that he was going, that he needed to come to a meeting with the youth team and with the head pastor. Now, Matt had been having little conflict with his youth team, essentially for the nine months um, that I, since I had really begun my season of discipline. Um, and he sat down in this meeting, and there's 10 other people on the youth team, and they sat, you know, it's hard to know, like, I wasn't in that room, but how it sounds, they sat in a circle, and, and the meeting is about Matt. And each person, had an opportunity to bring up their grievances about Matt. Aside from one man, this was the very first he had ever heard any of this. And they started and they each got a turn. 
and they each got to bring up all the ways that Matt had failed. And each person, according to my husband, was stronger and more passionate than the person before them, like they were feeding off of each other. The meeting lasted for two hours. There has never been a bigger grace in Matt and I's life than that meeting. Because in that moment when Matt, which really was Matt and I, because they were talking about me too. I just was home with the babies. Everything that they were saying was true. And the greatest moment of rescue was when Matt was, at the very end of the meeting, given a chance to say something. The pastor said, Matt, do you have stuff you need to bring up against them? And he said he felt, he sensed the Lord say, no, do not speak a word against them. If you rebuttal them, if you bristle against this feeling of shame, then your apology will be weakened and the whole trajectory of what I have for you will change. And God invited him to humbly receive what they said, to take this discipline. And then God seemed to tell us, we sensed that things were actually going to get worse. See, I think in our Christian culture, we do tend to think, yeah, an apology is all you need, and then things get better. But God actually wants so much more of us that sometimes he's going to draw out those hard seasons. He's going to allow it to get even worse. So there Matt was, he was encircled. Why was he encircled, so to speak? Well, because for years, we had been using the gifts that God had given us, and at times, using them to build up our own kingdom. These gifts he had given us to communicate, or host, or socialize, or whatever it was, slowly and surely, we had started twisting them to make us feel better about ourselves. You know, rather than wanting to share the hope of Jesus with somebody so that they would glorify God, it also had a little bit of, yeah, I'm going to feel really good if you need me, and I fix your problems, and you're now part of the fan club of Matt and Rebecca. We had no idea that that was going on in our heart until God allowed us to be called out, to be pulled out, to feel some shame. But guys, here's what happened in that moment, in that meeting, in this process, God rescued us. Because while our accusers, who loved Jesus and who were spot on, (coughs) while they spoke of condemnation, Jesus spoke of mercy. When shame got to this fork in the road and wanted to pull us down to humiliation, the gospel came and invited us down a road of humility. It was the hardest turn I've ever had to take. God invited us to lean into the season, and it led to my husband losing his job. We lost our job, therefore our paychecks, our bread and our water. We lost our house, and even our reputations to an extent. The wool and the flax that covered us, those things that made us think, yeah, we got this covered. But why it was okay, why that encircling was okay, why getting called out, pulled out, caught in the act was okay, is because it left us at the feet of mercy. It drew us out and left us at the feet of Jesus. 
How does God respond to our unfaithfulness? Turn with me now to Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve have sinned. They have decided that they don't want to reflect God, they want to be God. And so they have eaten from the forbidden tree. They have taken the gifts that God has given them and they decided that they want to use them for their own good. They sin, they realize that they're naked, they feel shame, cover themselves with some very uncomfortable loincloths, I'm thinking. Picking up in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from among the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Guys, stop right there. We always see this as like, oh, look, God is with his people. Isn't that great? And that's true. But there's something else we're missing. God is walking through this garden because it's judgment day. That's why they're afraid. They know that they are guilty. So here he is walking in on judgment day. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Let's stop there for a second. So here we are. God is in the garden, and he wants to pull his children out in confession. He wants to give them an opportunity to confess before he points it out himself. And so what does he do? He asks a question. This is one of my favorite patterns in the Bible. Guys, look for where God asks questions. He does it all through the book of Jonah. Jesus says it all the way through the Gospels. Here is God, and he says, where are you? Does God not know where they are? No, of course not. He knows where they are. He's giving them a chance. Think of the patient parent who says, where are you? Or, you want to tell me what you're doing? (laughs) And why you need stitches right now? He says, where are you? He gives them a chance to come forward in confession. And then the story goes on, guys. I'm sure you're familiar with this. Um, Jumping down to verse 21. After the confession, after the consequences have been laid out, it says, and the Lord, I'm sorry, verse, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. God covers them with animal skins. So guys, our question, how will unfaithfulness be dealt with? How does God respond? How does God respond to our unfaithfulness? He makes a sacrifice. He has Adam and Eve remove their attempts. He says, you've got to get rid of those fig leaves. Your attempts, they don't work. Okay, I can still see your shame. He has them take those off and instead on his act, he covers them with the skin of a sacrificed animal. He says, Adam and Eve, I have a much more sufficient covering for your nakedness. Do you guys see how this points to the ultimate response of Jesus, of God? Thousands of years later and millions, guys, millions of animals sacrificed later, Jesus would come and be the final sacrifice. Jesus would come to earth and live a perfect life. 
And although we are the unfaithful ones, he would allow himself to be encircled, encircled by an angry mob, a bloodthirsty mob. He would allow himself to be stripped naked. And he climbed up on the cross. He thirsted. He took the full weight of my sin and your sin, of my guilt. He bore our shame. He took the sorrow that our sin brings. This is how God ultimately responds to our unfaithfulness. See, it was Jesus who took that exposure that we read about in this text. He took our exposure on that cross. And do you know what we get? Isaiah 61.10 prophesied about this. Isaiah says, For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with robes of righteousness robes like last night royalty he says i'll take the nakedness the exposure the humiliation the shame here you get a robe a robe of salvation whose robe is it it is jesus's the king of kings is giving us the best robe like the prodigal son is given the best robe from his father our god who is so very rich in mercy clothes each one of us in royalty. This is good news for us. If we have heard it one time or a million times, we should be stirred. We should be moved at the heart or the mind. We should be shaken by this, at that image of Jesus on the cross getting the response to our unfaithfulness. Do you see how good this is for us? I mean, guys, even there's even more there in the Garden of Eden when they took off those fig leaves. This was pointing forward. Remember how we talked about this is one big story, Genesis to Revelation. Everything in Genesis is just screaming about the rest of the Bible. It's setting this arc. It's setting out these themes that should make us want to read the whole Bible. When Jesus, when, when God provided this skin for them, it's like he was whispering of something better. He was whispering of something to come. And you and I might not catch it because we are not an, the Hebrew audience. But when Moses' crowd is hearing Genesis for the first time, and they hear that Adam and Eve are naked, they're not just thinking, oh yeah, it's because they have no shame. No, they're actually thinking, you know what? That doesn't fit. They're supposed to be royal. I mean, God is describing them as these royal vice regents or these servant kings. Why are they naked? And then the solution maybe kind of unfolds when Moses' audience would hear that they were covered in animal skins. But do you know what else they would think? They would say, well, wait, an animal skin? A dead animal skin? That makes you unclean. See, even this scene in Genesis leaves us looking for more. It leaves us leaning forward in our seat saying, is there even more of a solution to come? Will our uncleanliness be dealt with once and for all? It's promising Jesus. We are not clothed in animal skins. We are clothed in the white robes of Jesus, the robes that he is described as wearing when he returns in Revelation. He does not leave us naked, ladies, but he also does not leave us unclean because of the gospel. God is merciful. God is omnipresent. He is jealous. He is self-sufficient. 
concept and make it boots on the ground? How do we respond to this text, to this poem, to this metaphor? Don't cover up. Let's start with that. Ladies, what if we didn't wait for the world to identify our shame, but we came out in confession? What if we came forward in confession even within the church? Do you need this weekend to confess a lying tongue? Now we're church women, so how about a white lying tongue? Do you need to confess a hard heart? Do you need to confess bitterness or jealousy? They like to hang out together. Ladies, who in this room needs to beat the world to the confession that you have a critical spirit that you're even critical of my teaching maybe just kidding <laughs> but ladies there's more sins there's other sins that we don't talk about because they're extra shameful right do you need to confess unfaithfulness in your marriage do you need to confess masturbation and porn it is a huge issue among women, and nobody talks about it. Do you need to confess lust? Do you need to confess that the show that you're binge-watching is soft porn? Do you need to confess that you're believing that there are no consequences for the shows that you watch? They're not affecting you. Do you need to confess that you are not submitting to your church leadership or to the people that God has put over you? Don't cover up, guys. Fig leaves don't work. They don't. If God has pulled you out, if God is inviting you to be called out, it is a mercy. It's the best thing that can happen to us. It is a grace. As you study God's word, allow it to pull you out of the bed of the world. Right? Think of those scribes and Pharisees. They were the law. right? They were essentially God's word to those people. It was them that found her in the bed of the other man. Could you allow God's word as you study it and study it hard to identify your sins, the ways that you are unfaithful to God, and let it pull you out? Let it drag you to the feet of Jesus. Ladies, our good news is that our accusers don't get the last word. Maybe it's actual people, but maybe it's the lies in our mind. Maybe it's the prince of lies himself who is accusing you, who is saying your sin has been there too long to overcome. Your sin is too subtle to actually be a problem. Who are your accusers that you are listening to? They do not get the last word. Mercy gets the last word. Like Jesus said to the woman in John 8, go and sin no more. Be done. Be done with that sin. It wants to kill you. It will not get you where you want it to get you. It will cost you more than you want to pay. It will hurt, and it will hurt those around you. But man, covenant nearness with Jesus, that's where we're safe. 
Confession is the way to a safe place. And we can do that because of Jesus, because of the gospel, because of the cross. Let's pray. Father, may we never, ever tire of this story. May we never be numb to the good news. Lord, it is only your spirit who can come into a room like this and and pierce our hearts where we need to hear it. Lord, it's impossible to pull out an example that would hit every woman in this room. But Lord, your Holy Spirit can do that. God, you are here. And you are jealous for us. You want us to obey. You want to lift our eyes to your character, to see who you are. So God, I pray that right now in this worship time, Lord, that these women would know and that I would know the ways that I'm forgetting who you are and all that you've given me. Lord, would you teach us to hate our sins, big and small, because in reality, they're all the same. Free us from addictions, Lord. Free us from chains. Lord, I pray specifically over this room, Lord, that you would free the women in this room from whatever it is that is keeping them isolated. Lord, whatever it is that is adding to loneliness or isolation or lack of community, Lord, would you fight against that and would you liberate your women? Lord, would you show them that you are a communal God and you want the same for them? So insecurity, Lord, I pray against it. Critical spirit, I pray against it. Fear, the fear of opening up, the fear of of being vulnerable in front of man, Lord, would you free us and heal us and make us new in this way, Lord? And I pray that the women of Veritas Cedar Rapids would experience something new and growing that they would catch on that redemption is brewing in this group, that they would point one another to the good news, that they would say it on repeat, God, that you would do what only you can do, that you would create new life in this group of women, Father, and that you would get all the glory, that your name would be lifted high, Father. Free us, God, from the sin. What a mercy you have given us. We delight in that. Amen.